Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Flanagan, Assistant Professor in UCD, who is Head of the Tissue Engineering Research Group in the UCD School of Medicine. So Tom's research focuses on tissue engineering in the field of cardiovascular disease, with a particular focus on developing living cardiovascular devices for the treatment of both pediatric and adult patients with heart defects. Um, and so, yeah, thanks again, Tom, for coming on and chatting to me today and coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Megan. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Um, great. So I suppose, you know, in this podcast, I like to kind of go back to kind of who the guest was uh, back in the day and kind of in school. And, you know, were you always interested in the kind of field of, you know, tissue engineering or, or being a scientist? Or did you have other kind of hobbies or careers in mind when you were in primary school? Well, I suppose you're, you're doing me a credit there because when I was in school, there was, there was no such thing as tissue engineering. It was long before that. But uh, so that came much later. But I suppose uh, when I was in school, Oddly, my main interest was in pharmacy and there was kind of an expectation that I'd end up in pharmacy because my, my grandfather, Cormac Flanagan, had set up a pharmacy in um, the, uh, the family's hometown in Hetford, County Galway. And uh, he, he died suddenly, actually, during the 60s, uh, the late 60s, I think, uh, dropped out of a, a heart attack, which is probably going to come up in our conversation again. The heart seems to run right throughout my, uh, my career, but... Um, his son, my uncle, Uncle Jimmy, he was the only one kind of trained in the family to, to continue pharmacy. So he took over the business and kind of expanded with a few additional uh, pharmacies around County Galway. And his two daughters um, became pharmacists. And it was kind of expected that I would as well. I was always quite academic in school and, and, and had had some sort of summer experience down in the, the chemists. But, um, you know, pharmacy is a science subject and I was always interested in science in school so I the expectation was that that's what I was going to end up doing but things just kind of turned out a bit different. And did you like when you were doing your leave insert did you choose kind of sciencey subjects in, with, the, with the view to go on and study pharmacy then? Yeah so I mean during the junior start cycle actually uh, you know I had one teacher in school who I really admired and that was my science teacher um, Seamus Donnelly. Uh, I'd love to know where he is now but uh, <laughs> He was my science teacher in school, and he actually, um, interestingly, introduced me to, to research, uh, my first research experience ever. So what's now, I think, the Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition, or I don't know the full title of that, but it used to be just the Young Scientists Exhibition. So he offered, uh, or he was trying to recruit a couple of pupils when he was in second year in school to take part in that competition. And, you know, he asked me if I was interested and... He said, go off and think about a project and come back to me. So I went off and I came back. And uh, in my naivety, I just said to him, yeah, I'd like to do a project on the heart. You know, that's something I'm interested in. And um, 
And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you know, just do a nice project on the heart, describe the anatomy and physiology and all that. And he's like, no, 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 this, this, is, a, this is a research competition. It's a research, a research project where, you know, you need to have a research question and come up with a study design to try and help answer that question. So I thought about it a bit more. And there was actually only two of us in the class who were interested in doing a particular project. So he put us together and between the jigs and the reels, we ended up doing a project on cowpats. So very, very different. And this was one of his sort of thoughts. And you'll see it with any, any of these uh, projects, you know, a lot of them are kind of very different. So back then we, we thought a project on the life cycle of a cowpat might be interesting and see what kind of animals sort of invade and reproduce within the cowpat over a period of two weeks. But, you know, it was very interesting and involved study design, involved uh, going out to the field, literally, and doing experiments and, you know, report, reporting those in a, in a project. And we did very well at that exhibition. So we, we came third in our category or whatever, and we got a, a display award, but we got a special award from the Institute of Biology of Ireland that year. So I think there was only two awards from them at the... Um, particular exhibition. So that was my first experience of scientific research. And then I was so glad that that particular teacher went on to teach biology at Leaven Cert mm-hmm. level. And again, you know, he was just fantastic. And, you know, I gained a real love for biology during uh, the Leaven Cert cycle. And towards the end of the Leaven Cert, I was kind of, I wasn't sure then about pharmacy. I was kind of leaning a little bit towards medicine. So on my CAO form, I, I think I put them down in that order pharmacy, medicine, didn't get them, went back to repeat the leave and start and kind of just missed out the second time. But what I had put down on my CAO as my third choice, <laughs> I took a sort of meandering route mm. to this point. My third choice was electronic engineering, though so very different. I didn't expect I'd be getting it. I honestly thought I'd get one of the other two, one of the other two courses. But for job security at the time, this is going back to the mid 90s, electronic engineering seemed, you know, a good thing to do. Mm. But then, of course, got into university, got into university in Galway, uh, in my hometown, doing electronic engineering. Loved university life, loved the people I met. Ironically, I ended up sort of hanging around with science students and medicine students and so on. And I didn't engage well with the, uh, well, I engaged well with the electronic engineering course. And I did well. I ended up coming second in the class, I think, that year, but didn't like it hated it in fact and my gut feeling entering it that was that this wasn't going to be uh, something I'd end up uh, with a career in but as it happened the school of medicine in NUIG at the time and the anatomy department particularly they were just in the final stages of offering anatomy offering human anatomy as a subject in the undergraduate science curriculum outside of the the medical programs it was the first time on the the island really that human anatomy was going to be offered as a science degree and this really really intrigued me so i spoke to people in anatomy i spoke to the dean of science and i said look i don't like this engineering is there any chance of transferring science and doing this and it wasn't a problem so that's how i got into anatomy really and the undergraduate degree and did you have to start then year one, like in anatomy, or could you transfer over? Uh, no, because I had, I happened to have uh, chemistry and physics and maths uh, from the electronic engineering first year. And that's kind of, that was kind of enough. And because I had biology from the Leaving Cert, I suppose that helped as well. So yeah, it was just a direct transfer into second year science. And I ended up doing 
as my main subjects. I did anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry as my second year subjects. And then third year dropped out the biochemistry and then in fourth year majored in the anatomy. Yeah, and definitely the right decision. Go with your gut. It must have been mad, you know, considering that you were doing so well kind of academically in your course if you were getting, you know, second in the class for your parents, not like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is madness. Yeah, well, they knew I wasn't interested and they knew I wasn't being motivated by the subject. And um, yeah, I think, you know, my mom was excited as well uh, at the, you know, the, the prospect of me doing something that I might actually, you know, enjoy. And there was more, you know, I, I did find during the leave insert that biology was my main interest and my main strengths were in uh, biology. So she knew I had decided for the wrong reasons to do the uh, the other degree. She was yeah very happy that I was going to be doing something I enjoyed. Sorry, just going back to I meant to ask you, are you from a farming background if you were kind of going out in the fields looking for cow pads? <laughs> no, but I think I think Seamus Donnelly, my science teacher, I think he may have, you know, he was he had a rural background anyway. I think um, I think he was from County Roscommon, and really it was it was his real idea uh, to do the, the cow pad study. Uh, but again, sort of ironically, you know, I, I grew up close to Salt Hill in Galway, so you know, a, a suburb of the town. But I happened to be surrounded by fields. Just our particular housing estate was surrounded by fields. You know, they've all been developed now, but those fields were full of cattle. And uh, so most of the field work we did for that project was done right behind my house. <laughs> so it was, just worked out great. But yeah, I'd, I'd describe that I had an urban upbringing rather than a, a rural upbringing. Mm. So I suppose, you know, talk to me a little bit about the anatomy course. Um, you know, did you in, enjoy it? And then I suppose leading into the a PhD that you eventually uh, undertook. Yeah, so I mean, the anatomy degree and the people in that department certainly shaped the research career that I ended up being involved in and pursuing. So, I mean, it was a small department and small research areas, but the program that they designed, the undergraduate degree program, like like I said, I was part of the first cohort in that. So the the uh, program directors they were kind of learning as they went along, but you know they they taught us gross anatomy histology, embryology, neuroanatomy. And then in the final year of the course, there was a module on tissue engineering. And it kind of makes sense in a department that teaches anatomy and histology because with tissue engineering, essentially, you're trying to develop tissues using the native components and conditions in the body. And with anatomy, you're learning you know, about growth structures. And then uh, in histology, you're looking at the uh, microscopic tissue structure. And essentially to build tissues, you need to know the histology of the tissue. You need to know the components involved. So it seemed like a natural place to have a teaching module on tissue engineering. And I suppose it was good foresight from, and I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Brendan Wilkins. As you know, I mean, NUI Galway and Galway itself, it's really a center of excellence now in tissue engineering Mm. and regenerative medicine. But this is back in... 1999, there was very little mention or any activity in tissue engineering at NUI Galway at that time. And I think Brendan Wilkins was really the first to introduce certainly a particular project, the project I ended up doing for my PhD in that department. So he got funding during our fourth year, but that was sort of tissue engineering. You know, it was there being looked at in the anatomy department very early on. And then the other main research interest in the department was on the mitral valve. 
So uh, Professor Jean Fallen Curran was head of anatomy there at the time, and her main research interest was in innervation of heart valves and innervation of the mitral valve specifically. So she had a team working on looking very closely at, at rat mitral valve structure and at um, degenerative changes in the mitral valve, looking at various different uh, conditions, so induction of diabetes and that kind of thing. So there was a strong research interest in heart valves and there was an emerging research interest in tissue engineering. And I suppose when I finished my final year, my final year research project actually was looking at aspects of mitral valve engineering with, with Gene Follin-Kern as my supervisor. Uh, and again, I, I was really interested in all the topics we were doing there and I was getting on quite well in the course. So when this particular project was advertised, I hadn't really considered doing a PhD. wasn't really sure what I wanted to do during the final year uh, of that undergraduate degree, but I became very interested in tissue engineering through the modules we were doing, through discussions with Dr. Wilkins and others at the department. And I was in a position where I was basically offered the project because it was just coming on stream uh, with a start date directly after the undergrad. And I thought about it for a while. It just seemed like a no-brainer to me because it was something I developed a passion in. And actually, one thing I had started thinking about was possibly teaching human anatomy at a later stage in my career. And again, didn't realize that to get into faculty, you know, you more than likely need a PhD. Uh, so I was getting advice from different people at the time. You know, if you do want to pursue a teaching career, you're going to have to get involved in research to some degree. So yeah, it was a, an easy enough decision in the end to, to start the PhD at that point. And then during the course of my project, there was more interest in sort of other institutes uh, and there was more recruitment in terms of personnel that could contribute to tissue engineering and regenerative medicine in the, the university. And I ended up getting another couple of people involved on my doctoral studies panel team. So in the end, we had a very, well, I had a very strong um, group of mentors. And um, yeah, that, that was my first sort of introduction to heart valve tissue engineering. And I haven't really looked back. You, you then went on and uh, did a postdoc, I think, in Germany. So kind of how, yeah. how was that? And, you know, how did that come about? That, yeah, again, I mean, it's probably like most research careers, you know, a lot of things sort of fall into place along the way. And, you know, this is a perfect example. So I got to a point in, you know, most PhDs might have three sort of sections, I suppose. And I got to a stage where I needed kind of expertise for the third part of my project that, you know, there was plenty of that in international laboratories. And one laboratory I had looked at was in Georgia Tech uh, with uh, Professor Bob Naram, and we'd been in discussions about a research visit there. And there was one or two other institutes in the States. And they kind of just fell through for one reason or another. But I remember being at a, a conference in Freiburg in Southern Germany. It was just over there by myself. It was just a biomaterials meeting. And I was looking at posters and this, uh, this guy just kind of comes over and uh, he was the lead author on the poster. And his name was uh, Stefan Jochenhovel. And his research you know, was very similar to mine. And the poster I was looking at involved, you know, laminar flow conditioning of tissue engineer constructs. And I was telling him, you know, this is really interesting and it's something I kind of need to do in my own project. And he said, well, if you're ever in Aachen, you know, in Germany, come and look me up. And I just kind of, I just said, yeah, you know, probably will. Like, but you, you go back and you, you, when it's a town you never really heard of, mm. um, I know I was familiar with his work, but I never thought I'd end up 
moving there. But then an opportunity arose a couple of months later with a particular scholarship. So I, I contacted Stefan again and said, look, scholarship opportunity has come up. It was a DAAD uh, program in Germany, this German Academic Exchange Scholarship. And I said, this might be a nice opportunity to get funding mm. to go over to your lab and um, get the work done that I need to do. So, yeah, he was delighted. I mean, he was, he was and is such an accommodating researcher and collaborator and mentor. So we got the funding and I went over to Germany. They funded me for five months, ended up spending eight months, I think. And um, they got me what I needed to sort of get the PhD finished. And I suppose when I did get the PhD finished straight away, there was a, an opportunity in Stefan's lab. It was a no-brainer for me because it, was, it involved heart valve tissue engineering. It also involved vascular tissue engineering at the same time. And the facilities and plans for the project that they had were just, they were so exciting that, mm. you know, uh, I couldn't say no. But like that, just from bumping into somebody at a conference, that sort of started the ball rolling with developing that uh, partnership, that collaboration. But um, yeah. And so you did the five months during your PhD and like, was that hard? Because you know, I suppose I'm just thinking of my own experience in a PhD and I felt like time was of the essence. And I suppose if I was to move somewhere else, I would have felt like I was starting from scratch nearly again, trying to settle in and stuff. So did that impact you at all or how did you find that? Well, looking back now, I mean, I got, I got so much assistance really moving over. Like Stefan, when I look back now, he he gave me so much help when I moved over first in terms of all the bureaucracy that goes with Mm. certainly moving to Germany and, you know, registering with the state or the county and all, all of this other stuff. And he helped me with all of that. So I was able to focus on the task at hand and the research I had to do. And I ended up staying for eight months instead of five. That's only because things didn't go quite well in the lab. Uh, you know, there was a lot of optimization and a lot of setbacks with some of the experiments we were doing. So, you know, thankfully the, uh, the, the center in Galway NCBES. So Professor Terry Smith was another person that was on my doctoral studies panel. He was able to, you know, fund the additional three months to get the, the work done. But no, I didn't see it as a, a hindrance or a limitation. I probably caused more of a hindrance and limitation when I came back. I was kind of faffing around trying to get the PhD finished and uh, against my supervisor's wishes, I actually, <laughs> I ended up getting a full-time job. But Again, looking back, that was nice to get a sort of a, because again, like I said, cardiac comes up time and time again, but it was a nice experience for me, even though I was, I was, I was working in manufacturing on an assembly line, but it was full time. It was the evening shift. The supervisory team weren't keen on it because it was really slowing me down, uh, as you can imagine. But uh, I look back, it was one of the best jobs I had in terms of being with people and interacting with people. And it gave me a nice insight into medical device development, medical device design, Q&A. So, I mean, the amount of quality assurance that goes on in development, we were developing and assembling stents and delivery systems in Medtronic. And it was great to see the amount of Q&A that goes into that because you'd kind of feel really safe then, uh, Mm -hmm. certainly recommending products. And again, this is all stuff that would sort of feed into my own understanding of medical devices and what's involved in terms of safety and all that kind of thing as well but um we got through the phd anyway in the end and, <laughs> and was that because you'd run out of funding or how come you took up that you, you decided to take on the job we were like writing yeah. in at the weekends then you know 
Well, what I ended up doing, and it's, it's kind of, it's unfair to, for me to say I ran out of funding. I mean, you run out of funding because you don't meet your deadline. So I didn't meet the deadline of submitting my thesis. Entirely my own fault. Yeah. Uh, so to support myself, instead of looking for a part-time job, like I said, I got a full-time job, you know, against the wishes of my panel. But that job started at 3.30 or 4.30 maybe in the afternoon. Okay. 12.30 at night. So it was evening shift. Yeah, it was full time. So I was trying to do my, my best during the day too. Um, but, you know, when you have a full time job and you're a student, you know, you think you're, you're loaded essentially. Yeah. So yeah, it was, I wouldn't recommend it <laughs> to any students that, that, you know, I might have. But, uh, you know, it's, it was a learning experience at least. That must have been kind of hard as well to, you know, go from a full time job and industry I suppose to then back into academia or were you delighted to get back in and do the postdoc? Yeah no I was thrilled I mean I, I always knew the, the thing in Medtronic was just a sort of a, a stopgap and you know the opportunity to do the postdoc in Germany with, with Stefan and his group was you know just fantastic. I mean at the institute in Aachen they basically had the, um, the Helmholtz Institute for Biomedical Engineering which was the engineering institute where we were going to be developing these tissue engineers structures and directly next to that across the field you had the university hospital the university's clinicum which was a, a human hospital but they had a veterinary hospital in the basement underneath and we had an animal study an implantation study as part of the project so that's really what excited me most was that we were going to be able to if we got to a point where we had implantable structures we were going to be able to test them in a large animal model, uh, which was the, the sheep model. So it was fantastic, fantastic experience. And it was just an ideal location for that. And they had all the facilities, infrastructure, everything else that was required for that particular project or those two projects. And so I suppose that's kind of a, just a good point in, in, in the conversation. So I suppose, you know, talk to me a little bit about, you know, the tissue engineering work that you've done in your career. And Yeah, so I mean, in general terms, I suppose, tissue engineering, first of all, it's, it's all in the name. You're trying to engineer tissue. And the only really way or the best way to engineer a tissue is to try to mimic all the components in a tissue and to try and mimic the conditions that they experience in the body. So, you know, you need to identify some sort of a cell type you need to identify some sort of a scaffold material. And then you're going to need some sort of signals because research has shown that you can't just add cells to a scaffold and hope that they turn that scaffold material, biodegradable material, into the tissue that you want. You need to add in that third sort of component, which might be, well, it'll be some, sort, some form of signaling. It might be mechanical stimulation. Uh, it might be... Uh, additional biomolecules like growth factors and so on to direct the cells into producing the tissue components that you want and organizing them, I suppose, into the um, particular gross and microscopic and even nanoscopic structure that you need. So there's a lot of research around the world in tissue engineering. I mean, I was only thinking today, it's, it's 25 years since the, I suppose I'd call it the first seminal paper on heart valve tissue engineering. Uh, it was released in 1995 by the group, the main group in Boston. I mean, you've probably heard of Bob Langer uh, and Jay Vacanti. You know, they're considered the sort of the uh, godfathers of tissue engineering. But she also had John Mayer Jr., who was at Boston Children's Hospital. So they, 
reported a simple study looking at a tissue engineered valve leaflet. So only a small part of the valve, but they implanted it in sheep and they described um, how that sort of tissue remodeled. So that's 25 years and many groups around the world now, I suppose, trying to enhance or develop structures that are more closely resemble, more closely mimic the structure of native heart valve. So you have many different groups looking at a variety of synthetic polymers. You have others looking at biological polymers. You have others who are more focused on the cell type. Uh, and then you have others who are more focused on the different types of mechanical environments, different types of growth factors and so on. And really we're a heart valve tissue engineering community and we're all learning from each other. And I suppose the work in Germany, main sort of exciting thing about it was the scaffold material we were looking at was fibrin. So fibrin can be isolated from a blood sample. And the attractive thing about fibrin then is it could potentially be used as a, an autologous scaffold. So a material that can be taken from the patient, from their blood, in combination with cells that could potentially be taken from the patient to create a structure that you would expect would not be rejected by that patient. Because it was at a biomedical engineering institute as well, there was also plans in the project to look at developing bioreactor systems, which were essentially like gyms for the cells, like a, a fitness studio, as, as mm-hmm. Stefan used to call it, typical German description, a fitness studio for the uh, cells. So, you know, we were developing bioreactors that essentially mimicked the opening and closing of the um, heart valve leaflets and so on. And we found that that encouraged tissue development, developed stronger tissues than if you had cultured these valves in static, you know, in a beaker of medium, for example. So we got to a stage where the valves we created were strong enough for implantation. And our model was the sheep. So in terms of cardiovascular devices, the main models you want to look at are sheep or pig because of the, uh, typically in terms of the size and the cardiovascular physiology. But I suppose sheep was looked at at that time as well because calcification tends to be high in sheep. So they're sort of a, a worst case model. You know, generally you implant something in the cardiovascular system of sheep, it can calcify quite easily. So... Um, the sheep model was chosen. And I mean, there was a, a farm on the land as well between the institutes. So our sheep that were enrolled in the study were essentially next to the uh, institute as well. And I suppose in parallel with this study, we had a, an arterial graft study going on at the same time, using the same materials and using similar cell types. So essentially, we, we had sheep recruiters to the study. We'd isolate part of the carotid artery for both studies and remove cells, autologous cells, the sheep's own cells from those vessels. We'd also extract fibrin from their blood and construct these arterial grafts or heart valves, essentially as uh, autologous structures. Very nice results from the arterial graft study. No thrombosis, which was, I suppose, the main concern. And it was a, you know, it was a very nice, successful study. My, my main love is heart valves. That was essentially the work at the during the postdoc. And I suppose during that time, you kind of wonder, okay, where, what am I going to do after this? And the obvious thing is try to uh, get a position elsewhere, either as another postdoc. And I know a lot of people have to do that. I was kind of fortunate because a position opened up in UCD, uh, specifically in the anatomy department. And I put forward a proposal about establishing the cardiovascular research group here uh, as part of the the recruitment process, for which was essentially a human anatomy lecturer. And it was a job I was very keen to get because I had such a love of human anatomy as a, 
a real interest in teaching human anatomy. And the opportunity to establish my own research group was a very attractive proposition as well. Sorry, I seem to have been talking for ages. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're uh, grand. I asked a very open-ended question. It's good for yeah, me great. when I do that because then you do all the talking. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, I, I'm just wondering, like, I suppose kind of one of the other areas I was interested in is like, you know, with the kind of workload of lecturing that you have, like, are you able to bring in areas of research that you're doing in the lab into your teaching then? Yeah, so I definitely, and I think like most researchers are definitely bringing in some of the, the relevant programs that we teach, medicine, biomedical health and life sciences and, and engineering, particularly just talking in terms of innovation of medical devices in the cardiovascular fields. And I, I think it, it resonates more with students when they can get the experience of a researcher, but it resonates more with them when they can get not just research expertise, but experiences from the researcher as well. So I mentioned earlier about how, you know, the heart kind of is a common thread through my research in my career and I mentioned that my grandfather had dropped out of a heart attack but my father really is the real reason I kind of maintained a keen or developed a keen interest in the field so he um, he died very young again he had heart disease so it's really prevalent in the family and um, he died during a triple bypass procedure so basically anyone who doesn't know what the tri- triple bypass of the heart is uh, essentially one bypass is where you implant a graft to bypass a blockage when you require three or four, uh, your heart's in pretty bad shape, or at least the coronary arteries are. So he developed complications during the surgery. And, um, you know, we were all very young when, when he died. So I was only 10 years old. But again, that particular surgery and the equipment involved and something like that. So the cardiopulmonary bypass machine uh, or the heart-lung machine. And the people involved, like there's a lot of people in the team like that, perfusionists and anesthetists and the surgeons and so on. So I, I teach I teach students about that in, in both medicine and BHLS and the biomedical engineering program. But actually, in terms of talking about my own father's case, I do talk about it. But I I don't really have the answers. We don't know really what happened. Or we we got a lay person's mm. description of what happened to my father during the um, surgery. So you can imagine. You know, it was going to be a life saving surgery, but it's an elective surgery. So he went in of life. I uh, was booked in for three days and just didn't come out of it. But the, uh, I was a small child, so I got sort of second and third hand information from my mother. But it was essentially that they couldn't get him off bypass machine after complications developed and that his heart couldn't take it. And this was kind of, we kind of accepted that and moved on. But when you kind of go through your career then and, you know, 30 years pass by and you're trying to explain to students about the case and, you know, you're learning more about the machinery involved. I really, and my own inquisitive mind, I suppose, as a scientist and a researcher, I, I sort of developed an itch I couldn't scratch uh, or that I needed to scratch. And um, I, I had a bit of a lockdown side project over the last few months. So I thought, okay, the only way if I'm ever going to find anything out is to basically see if I can get his, his operative records from the, the hospital where he had a surgery. So, within a freedom of information application and, you know, I had to sit, sit on it, you know, for, or sit and wait really for about eight weeks. And I just emailed them to follow up, I suppose. Same way you'd email a a journal if you're waiting on a a review. But uh, they said they had the the records. That was one thing I didn't know. Like I didn't even know if these records would exist, you know, from 1989. So it was great to hear they had them, but they needed they, they needed to review them before they'd released them under that 
Act. And would you, sorry, would you have had the records like back then? But you probably wouldn't have seen no, them. Okay. No, we we had nothing. Right. Uh, only um, basically the hospital would have transferred, I suppose, uh, information on what complications developed to my father's cardiologist in Galway, and that's who explained to my mother then essentially what happened. But yeah, it was third-hand information, and we we didn't have a record of anything. But <laughs> so I still wasn't sure if they'd arrive. And then on my birthday, this letter comes in the letterbox so just the end of may there only a few weeks ago and uh a big strictly private and confidential on it so i kind of knew what it was and um they had said they'd send me a decision letter but this was a big thick envelope so i knew it was something important and mm. uh, sure enough it was his whole record and um yeah it was the treasure trove i suppose of information i thought it, it might be you know the thought that might have existed and there was a lot of difficult stuff to read in it and you know a lot of personal stuff that he would have signed and you know that kind of thing but there was a lot of information in it and I suppose it took me about a week to decipher everything because it was photocopies of microfilm copies um, okay. so everything was there was a lot of stuff that was completely illegible a lot of stuff that was faded um, a lot of handwriting that had issues trying to decipher but at, you know about a week of kind of studying it uh, during lockdown I, I I kind of had enough information. I thought, well, there was a few holes in it, but, you know, I certainly knew that it was clear from the, the, the documents that the surgical team and everyone did everything they could to try and salvage the situation and to resuscitate them and so on. But, you know, being the, the ever inquisitive, the, those few bits I couldn't read and, you know, knowing a bit about the anatomy and so on, I, I just, uh, I said, okay, I'll contact the surgeon because, I knew the surgeon was still alive 30, 30 years later, 31 years later. And I said, I'll just see if, he, if he'd be interested in discussing the case. So I contacted him. Didn't think he'd get back to me, but he emailed me back within half an hour. Gosh. And, uh, I suppose what I had suggested to him was that, you know, I might send him the records. And, you know, it was essentially a lot of his notes and uh, records from his team that I kind of needed a bit of deciphering on. And he said, he said, I'd like to meet you. So, you know, I was just stunned, you know, this was mm. all kind of happening really quickly and never expected I'd be meeting, you know, the surgeon, the per- person who saw my, my father alive, uh, the last person to see him alive, um, really such a long time ago. So yeah. this was on a Friday. We ended up arranging to meet the following Thursday. So uh, it was just the most surreal, but wonderful experience. I mean, I had a boardroom booked here in, in UCD because we had to... Know, maintain the social distancing and yeah. all that and we were wearing masks and you know he was just very gracious with his time and he didn't recall the case you know he's done thousands of cases but you know I didn't expect that he might but you know he went through everything and we kind of talked about what most likely went wrong and, and everything else and he, he filled in a lot of the blanks for me and it was it was fantastic and he explained to me you know if that all happened now that you know there'd be a lot of options open to my father that might have saved him like you know a ventricular assist device might have saved his heart and gotten him a bridge to heart transplant and so on and you know it was great to learn about these as well like because this is all stuff I can pass on to my Mm. students and um, you know I know a bit more about the the history of cardiac surgery in this particular country as well so it was all brilliant and I mean it was like it was almost like having my dad sitting there in the room with us as well sort of nodding and you know just happy for my sake that we kind of knew 
how things uh, turned out with him. Like, uh, so it was, it was just brilliant. And I suppose in terms of teaching the students, I think this will benefit them, you know, as a, a case. I, I want to try and create this into some kind of interesting case with sort of, uh, you know, differential diagnosis sort of aspect, but uh, okay. even all the other stuff about medical devices and the CPB machine and all that, you know, it's, uh, I'm more confident talking to the students now about that kind of thing because I know not a lot more about it. But. Did it kind of give you any type of comfort to know that there was nothing that they could do kind of at the Ab- time? Yeah, absolutely. Because not that you'd ever kind of have doubts about their capability. I mean, these were world-class surgeons, mm. but just not knowing exactly what went wrong, you'd always kind of be wondering you know, as it turned out, like, I won't talk too much about the, the details of it, but he actually, the surgery actually went well, but he started to deteriorate uh, in intensive care and they had to bring him back in again and redo some of the procedure and then do a lot of other different th- things to try and uh, essentially save his heart and uh, bring him back. Uh, I suppose the, the thing that comforted me most was he was never aware of any of this that was going on, you know. But yeah. yeah, it was great. Very big comfort. I mean, after 30 years and everything sort of fell into place, you know, getting the package of my birthday was Yeah. And sorry, just a, another question. Was the surgeon still practicing or was he retired? No, he was retired, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it, uh, up until recently, I didn't even know who a surgeon was. You know, I, I knew maybe in the last year or two, but even when I heard the name, I wasn't even sure if he was still alive. So to, to the fact that he was still alive and very well after 30 more years was crazy. But uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, that was my um, my lockdown project. So we've established in the cardiovascular research group in UCD. So I suppose since then, we've continued our focus on heart valve tissue engineering as well as vascular tissue engineering. And... In terms of tissue-engineered heart valves, there's options out there for people. So the main surgical replacement options for anyone, whether it's pediatrics or adults, is either a mechanical valve or a bioprosthetic valve, which is fixed tissue from an animal, it might be bovine or pig, or it could be cryopreserved homographs um, from human donors. These all work very well in adults. So I suppose we were looking at what's the main target population that we want to address. So the obvious one was was pediatrics because the main issue with pediatric patients is you can implant a mechanical valve or a bioprosthetic valve in a small infant, a baby even. But that baby, if they survive, that baby's going to grow. Their heart is going to grow, but the valve that was implanted isn't going to grow. So the challenge faced by the pediatric population in terms of heart valve replacement is that these structures aren't going to grow with the patient. And at the moment, hopefully this will change over the next decades probably, but the main way to implant heart valve in an infant patient is open heart surgery. These patients that outgrow their valves, they need multiple open heart surgeries uh, until their, you know, their heart is pretty much fully grown in their teenage years. So we saw this as our sort of target population. And that's how we got involved with the, um, the National Children's Research Centre and the, the CMRF, the Children's Medical and Research Foundation, who have supported a lot of our research over the last uh, number of years. With the uh, paediatric side of it, is this common, like this kind of, you know, having defects in your valves as, a, as an infant? So, I mean, 1% of all live births are associated with some kind of a congenital heart defect. Okay. So that is basically some sort of malformation of the heart. Now, there's many, many different manifestations of 
congenital heart disease and congenital heart defects. But a lot of those defects will be associated with a defective heart valve. And even other defects will require the need for a vascular graft. So there are conditions, a lot of conditions, uh, like single ventricle anomalies, defects like that, that require major reconstruction of the heart. So essentially replumbing the entire system because you essentially have one pump instead of two, trying to pump blood to both the lungs and Mm -hmm. the rest of the body. So these infants, they have to undergo serious reconstruction in stages because it's, um, it's, it's so complex. But one of the last stages of particular type of reconstruction for those univentricular anomalies is to implant a vascular graft, which will essentially act to bypass the reconstructed heart, getting blood straight from the body, venous blood from the body straight into the pulmonary trunk to the lungs. So we have targeted uh, vascular grafts in that case, but also in terms of defective valves, we've been looking at pediatric tissue engineered valves for that purpose. And one of our real supporters has been uh, the National Children's Research Centre at Crumlin. So everybody knows Crumlin Children's Hospital. I should give it its proper name at the moment. It's Children's Health Ireland, Crumlin. But the research centre associated with Crumlin is the NCRC. And they're primarily funded through the CMRF. So we've been very fortunate to work with them. And I mean, the main research sort of priority areas at the NCRC at the moment, luckily for us, include cardiology and vascular biology, but other areas are childhood cancer, infection and immunity and orthopedics and this kind of thing. But all that funding comes through the CMRF. So if you don't mind me plugging the CMRF, I mean, we're no. in difficulty at the moment during current times, but uh, it's a completely charitable organization. And not only do they, they fund uh, this particular type of research, but they fund a lot of life-saving equipment at Crumlin as well. They fund a lot of sort of initiatives to enhance the quality of life of patients, uh, young patients at Crumlin, whether that's, you know, therapies. And they, they fund um, enhancements of the environment of these patients at the hospital as well. So things, I mean, a good example is, you know, ward refurbishments and things like that. The, uh, the Children's Heart Centre, which was set up a few years ago, which is a state-of-the-art facility for heart surgery in infants. And then things like they have teen rooms and stuff for teenagers who are very sick just to kind of get away and might be kind of a games room type environment and so on but fantastic organization fantastic people working for them as well and generally with a lot of research bodies you don't get you don't get to interact much with the people at the research body you know sfi or hrb or whatever but with an organization like cmrf crumlin you know i've met fundraisers on a lot of occasions all fantastic people all with you know an admirable goal of enhancing uh, children's lives so um, yeah we're delighted to be working with them yeah and like you know even with kind of a podcast like this it's science communication but it might be of interest to people who are scientists but also a lay audience and I think a lot of our research as scientists sometimes does come from public funding and from charities like what you're talking about so I think it's really important you know you're here chatting to me and telling me exactly kind of what you're researching and that maybe might give someone else they might say oh well we'll support that you know for example with us where Arthritis Ireland funds a lot of our work which is you know a charity as well and so I suppose it's, it's so interesting with the whole kind of tissue engineering and saying that you would take a patient's own materials or own cells you know in the case of of an of an infant and would that happen when they're born like as in yeah so I mean 
you can look at lots of different cell types. One research group can't look at all the particular options. So the, what we're most interested in in terms of cell types are cells that can be taken from the umbilical cord. So, you know, there's lots of cell types in the umbilical cord, whether it's in the, the veins and arteries of the umbilical cord. You know, you have endothelial cells, smooth muscle cells, fibroblasts and so on. You have myofibroblasts in the, the Wharton's jelly component of the cord. So we're looking at essentially using waste tissue uh, or it's going to contain cells specific to the patient. So realistically, you'd be looking at extracting cells from a patient's cord and having to bank them probably more than likely because with any tissue engineered construct, uh, you're not going to be making it you know, for urgent cases. Now, there are certainly groups looking at trying to extract cells from uh, the amnion and things like that actually in utero before a patient is, is born. You know, fascinating kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but we'd be looking at sort of banking these cells. And, you know, that potentially has applications in adults then as well, later down the road. Uh, and then in terms of the scaffold materials, we're still kind of looking at natural materials. The thing about natural materials is they're, they're kind of difficult to control. So we're starting to use synthetic materials a bit more now, or really a composite of the two, because synthetic polymers have lots of advantages that biological materials don't have. And likewise, biological polymers have a lot of advantages over synthetic. So we're trying to find a balance between the two. Uh, and we're doing that for both the vascular grafts that we're trying to develop and also the, the heart valves that we're trying to develop. And, uh, you know, you work on the umbilical cord and uh, yeah. material, material from this. So where do you get those or, or how do you obtain those to do your experiments? Well, there's a couple of things. So one of our recently published study on uh, the tissue engineered vascular grafts, we we need an umbilical cord blood to isolate fibrinogen, which was our scaffold that we were trying to develop. And basically, we had to go through a, the ethics committee at, at Hollis Street, the National Maternity Hospital. So, you know, even before a project starts, if, if there's stuff you need ethical approval for, you need to kind of get all that done well in advance so that because it's a timely process and has to go through several committees. So we got, you know, generous donations from expectant mothers in um, Hollis Street, who are willing to, to donate their umbilical cord blood for that project. And that was fantastic. And thanks to them, thanks to the, um, the nurses collected the blood. But actually, that was that same project, I think, because it was a few years ago. But the night my first son was born, back in 2013, we hadn't actually put in any applications at this stage for anything. But we needed positive control tissue for our vessels. So I had arranged with the hospital to essentially give me a, a section of my son's cord. And the night he was born, well, I don't know what most fathers would be doing. They'd probably be wetting the baby's head, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I came to UCD trying to fix and process this particular cord. Yeah, obviously I had spent, spent the whole day and everything making sure my wife and the, yeah. the, the baby were, were, were great. But uh, yeah, so it was processing his tissue. Now, my master's student at the time, Sean Strother, he, he kind of took over and, and did the rest of it for me. But my son's tissue is now immortalized in several papers somewhere. <laughs> nice immunoimages of his, uh, his umbilical vein. So, um, yeah, it'll be a nice story for him in the future anyway. Yeah, God, that is mad. I mean, like, it, it could have been like, you know, in the middle of the night when you had to do that. So thankfully, it was, was it kind of the evening time? No, it was morning. So it was definitely before noon. I was in here in the evening anyway. So I think I would have spent the whole day in the hospital. And yeah, it was evening time. And then Sean took over for me. But I think we still have some of the 
some of the blocks left up in the lab. I know my PhD student Ian Woods will probably get a giggle because he would have used a lot of those sections for his, his study. But yeah. <laughs> went to good use absolutely yeah 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 it was either that or try and bank it and culture as cells i i said i wouldn't go down that route because <laughs> a lot of people do that don't they they kind of store the umbilical cords for various different reasons now yeah various reasons yeah so um whether it's to store the blood or to store the cord for yeah isolation of cells at a later date i suppose that's you know when we talk about using umbilical cord cells i mentioned it earlier but yeah that'd be part of the thinking behind it that you'd You'd want to be banking cord if you were looking to do this, you know, in early childhood or even in adulthood, just to, you know, have the cord banked, cryopreserved, yeah. Is there a kind of a, like you were saying, you need to have this kind of stimulus because the graft probably won't work or the scaffold won't work by, on its own. So what kind of are you looking at to, to drive that? We've always been focused more on the mechanical environment. So looking at essentially these fitness studios. So they'd be essentially closed loop bioreactor systems. So I'm sure you've done a lot of cell culture in your time. Normally you just culture cells on flasks or dishes or whatever. When you're moving to three-dimensional structures, you're culturing cells in a three-dimensional environment. Again, it might be just in flasks and so on, but to condition cells with appropriate mechanical stimuli or at least what you think might be appropriate mechanical stimuli you kind of need to to look at bioreactor systems so we developed these closed loop systems that can be assembled in the hood when the time is right everything under sterile conditions and you're trying to mimic the conditions in the body or the environment in the body at least at the implant site as much as you can so i mean a simple a simple bioreactor system for a vascular graft might just involve pumping the medium through the lumen of the graft. Mm. But having pulsatile flow and similar pressure conditions that you might experience, whether it's uh, arterial pressures or venous pressures, wherever your target site is. And several studies have found that this enhances tissue development within your grafts. So it makes the tissue stronger, as you'd expect. And as you know, it's why that sort of uh, description of a fitness studio kind of makes sense. And then for the heart valves, it's kind of similar, you know, developing systems that will condition these tissues, developing tissues. You're accelerating, I suppose, the tissue development in vitro to get these tissues to an implantable sort of an endpoint. But others, others would do it differently. Others are looking at implanting, I suppose you'd call them sort of naked scaffolds that wouldn't have any cells. They might have other um, molecules as part of the scaffold structure and implanting those as essentially devices that will recruit cells and recruit molecules and might have some other functions in the tissues. So we're looking mainly at in vitro cultivation of tissues to get them to a stage where they're implantable. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's very interesting the you know, the point that you made that these infants would have to have multiple open heart surgeries because if you implanted uh, a valve early on, it wouldn't grow with them. But would this also mean if you could implant the, the valve that you're talking about that's derived from their own tissues, that it would not only grow with them, but it would kind of integrate with their own kind of anatomy of the heart, I suppose. And Yeah, so I suppose I'll tell you what the holy grail is from my point of view. There's a couple of things you need to look at. One is to develop a valve that will grow, okay? So it's essentially like a tissue and will grow as a tissue will need influence from the surrounding environment. So naturally, if you have 
a valve that's stitched in. So it's, it's actually implanted through open heart surgery and it's stitched in place at the valve annulus. It's more likely to grow with patient. But I suppose the other thing that would be nice to eliminate is any open heart surgery. Mm. So in adults, there are a lot of options currently uh, of transcatheter valve implantation. So this is essentially where a valve is crimped like a stent and will generally have a stent as part of a structure crimped onto a, a catheter and introduced through the groin or perhaps through the through vessels in the arm, but introduced to the valve implantation site and expanded at that site. And there are several prosthetic valves on the market for that particular application in, in adults. And that's, you know, it's a very exciting area. That would be very beneficial for children. Mm. If you could have a crimpable valve that can be implanted through their uh, blood vessels minimally invasively. The problem, again, because you're dealing with such a small, tiny little patient, is their blood vessels are much smaller. So there's, there's very little room. There's very little room for that kind of an approach. But with every industry, as we all know, developments have made smaller and smaller and smaller products. And, you know, I'd like to think that someday this will be possible in infants. We're trying to develop minimally invasive um, stents for this application, but at the moment it's not looking at introducing the stents through blood vessels. It's more of a, it's called a transapical approach. So you're essentially, you're still introducing the valve through the chest. You might need a partial opening of the chest, partial sternotomy, but you're introducing the stent and the valve through the apex of the heart. So again, it's, it's less invasive. It's not, mm. I wouldn't call it minimally invasive, but it's the more sort of realistic option at the moment. So we're looking at, in addition to developing the valve, we're looking at developing stents using various different fabrication techniques. And um, some of those are working out quite nicely. And we're, I suppose, the current heart valve funder project that we have at the moment, very multidisciplinary, but there's two co-PIs on that. Professor Damien Kenny, who's a pediatric cardiologist in Crumlin. And so he'd be you know, cardiologists are more, they have more expertise on stent delivery, that kind mm. of thing. And they'd be the ones introducing, you know, transcatheter stents and so on. And then we have a collaborator in Bristol, Professor Massimo Caputo, who's pediatric cardiac surgeon over there. So they're both heavily involved in our heart valve study. And when we get to stage of animal implantation there, that'll be done in Bristol with Professor Caputo. Uh, so that's in the pipeline. Should mention two of the people as well on the project, Anna Le Chevalier, it's a PhD project currently working on that, doing great work on the cellular side of things. And then we have, interestingly, a, a plastics engineer is his background, uh, Dr. Douglas Marquez from Brazil is um, looking at, he's the main sort of materials person on this particular heart valve team as well. And do you do any like 3D printing? We do. So we don't do 3D bioprinting. Okay. So there's a lot of groups doing 3D bioprinting where they're essentially printing the tissue. We're, we're not really at that point, so we're not using 3D printing for those applications. We are 3D printing stents. We are 3D printing a lot of other materials that, you know, would be important. So we do a lot of electrospinning, for example. So that's essentially where you're, you're weaving um, synthetic polymers onto a collector. Now, that collector could be a flat plate just to make... A, you know, a non-woven sort of mesh, or you might 3D print onto a cylinder. 
you know, which mm. is ideal for a vascular graft or something like that. But you might want different shapes to deposit particular scaffolds and to shape your scaffolds. So for example, we do 3D printing of our collectors to make different types of collectors and so on. So a 3D printer at the moment is an essential piece of kit in any mm. lab, I think. And will probably be in every home within five or 10 years as well. Yeah, God, it's mad. And um, I suppose kind of one of the questions I, I tend to ask people is, you know, looking back kind of on the career that you've had, is there any advice that you would give to maybe someone who would be interested in kind of a career as a scientist or, or in academia? Yeah, so research is probably like being in a relationship. So I think you're more likely to have success in a research area if you're, if you're passionate about the topic from the beginning. I suppose that's one of the main things. You need to be sort of essentially head over heels about the, the topic. And you're probably more likely or less likely, I should say, to have success in a particular area if, if there's a need for you to sort of grow to love the topic and to sort of, yeah, that you're only kind of looking at the research topic, you know, for the sake of research. So I think if you're having doubts about a particular area, really your best to look elsewhere and, and um, find something that really excites you. Because if you do find an area that you're head over heels about, you know, you could make a, a, a long and successful career out of it, but um, you need to enjoy it. And I mean, equally, that's the research project or the research topic equally the same sort of applies to research team so if you have any kind of doubts about joining a particular team for any reason or another or about a particular person joining your team you know you should kind of trust your instinct because um, it might mean that you know you're potentially getting into a situation you know because this is a big commitment it's a big mm. commitment for uh, either both people or you know a big team a lot of people you know it could be a recipe for a disaster you know if things don't work out an ugly breakup <laughs> involved but uh, yeah I'm not speaking from experience this is just you know from the network I suppose you hear these kind of stories but yeah you need to be passionate about the subject because if you don't like what you're doing you're not going to make a success out of it. Yeah no and I think like from people I've talked to you know academia is hard and there's a lot of setbacks and a lot of kind of rejection but unless you, you love it like you're saying you, you just won't stick at it because it's hard I suppose. Exactly, yeah, because you can have you can have a really good relationship with somebody and you'll have good days and you'll have bad days, but you know, you still be very happy together. Yeah. And that's that's because you love them. And I mean if you love a, a research project, you can have your good day you can have your bad days, whether they're you know, experiments not working or paper rejections or whatever it is, but you're gonna have your good days as well and you're gonna stick through it till the end. So um Yeah. yeah. And and like kind of on that, how do you how did you find the transition from like postdoc to supposed to being like head of a lab or supervisor and kind of managing? That's it, it's kind of like a management role nearly as well because you're trying to juggle so many different things, grants and projects and um, yeah, mentoring. So yeah, so I think I think it would have been harder if it was a hundred percent research role because then you're really straight in from you know essentially postdoc is you know essentially kind of half independent, but half still sort of a trainee in a sense, you know, in terms of that management and that kind of thing. But I suppose because half my job was teaching, that took up a lot of my focus at the beginning. And, you know, it still does. But at the same time, you're trying to establish a lab, but the expectations, I suppose, are probably a bit lower because you have those other commitments. And if you do have like a sort of a 50-50 sort of a model, academic workload model, you sort of, you're eased into it a bit more gently, I suppose, at the beginning. Now, in a way, that can be a bad thing because it can 
sort of stunt stunt you a bit, but um, it would definitely be. I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have been comfortable moving into a hundred percent research role because, yeah, that would have been a major step up from a, a postdoc. What do I love? I mean, you, you kind of love you love chasing the question. You know, there are a lot of setbacks in research that you never really hear about. You know, they're not the things that are really publicised. But uh, I suppose chasing the question and. You may not get the answer you expect to a particular question, which is all part of the scientific process. But when you get unexpected answers or when you, when you get the, the answer you want, that's kind of the most exciting thing because if you have a particular hypothesis and that's going to inform you know, subsequent research after you've answered that question, they're, they're real sort of highs. And there's a lot of highs in research as well, you know, students completing their PhDs and, you know, uh, getting a research paper, you know, to have a research paper, you know, as a student, as a first author, it's a real highlight for the student, but it's not, it's a, it's a real highlight for the supervisor as well. You do a lot of lecturing because uh, that's actually how I kind of approach you. You were my lecturer when I was doing uh, biomed in UCD a few years ago. And I suppose it's probably telling because you were, you were, you had this ambition to kind of teach anatomy back in the day. So it's probably yeah. nice for you now that you can't, you are able to do that within your job. Yeah, and I mean, I have to be very clear here. I mean, I I don't think I'd have total job satisfaction if I didn't have teaching. So, I mean, many PIs and researchers, their academic workload model might be very different. They might have, you know, 100% research contribution. And, you know, that takes a very specific sort of a, a researcher to have that kind of engagement with it. I, I'm just passionate about teaching. And I think if I didn't have teaching, I don't think I'd feel as fulfilled as I do in my position. And I mean, it's all about passing on knowledge, really. And, you know, that's going to be passed on from, you know, your students to other people as well. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely get, I get a real kick out of teaching. And, um, you know, I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to enhance my teaching as well. And, you know, we're always trying to be innovative in how we teach, but I suppose trying to get across the information in the best way you can. I suppose it's about communication. We're communicators when we're lecturers and we're trying to guide students. Communicating it in the most effective way possible is, I suppose, what any lecturer communicator should be should be doing. You know, you've won many teaching awards, so that's amazing. You know, obviously uh, it's working. You've um, done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I. Um, yeah, I suppose, and that that probably gives you a bit of a a kick to you know enhance your teaching even further like uh, and I suppose I've been lucky I've always liked the challenge of trying to explain difficult concepts to students so you'd really get that in particularly neuroanatomy but you'd also find that in embryology and histology as well so to me it's a challenge to teach effectively but mm. I really enjoy it and get a kick out of it and that's probably I guess it comes across as well when when students kind of recognize or appreciate your your efforts yeah no de definitely because you know I, I was talking to my friend who we both did biomed together and I was trying to think who should I who do we have in UCD because obviously I'm Trinity now and uh, we were thinking and then we could thought of a few names and your name came up and I said oh well definitely email <laughs> um, and you know we we probably would have had you very early on because with biomed you're kind of only in with med students at the start of the of the course but uh, one of my kind of last questions for you and what I usually ask people is if if you weren't in science you weren't in a scientist uh, where do you think your life would have ended up yeah so at, at the start I mentioned um, pharmacy as a 
what I initially wanted to do. But I, don't, if, I think if I, if, I, if I hadn't got either of these sort of vocations, probably a, a, a role in GAA commentary or GAA analysis because uh, I love going to GAA matches and uh, I'm from a dual county. I'm from Galway, so we're kind of spoilt. <laughs> but I uh, love going to matches and I love talking about matches. And I think to, to, to be in a position where you'd get paid to do that yeah, it'd just be, it'd be a dream, so. Marty Morrissey <laughs> should watch yeah, out, should he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Marty, Mom is the Marty Morrissey of Galway, yeah. <laughs> and like, do you, did you play football when you were younger? You? I, played, I played underage, yeah, football. But I mean, I love football. I played with Salta and Nottingham, but, uh, and the, the district teams at a younger age than that. I always liked playing football. I loved watching both sports, but I just remember in school, it was primary school as well. I just remember us all out in our school uniforms across from the school in Salt Hill, St. Enda's in, in the Prairie beside Pier Stadium with Tom Monaghan, who was Galway Hurler at the time. And I just remember one of my classmates getting a belt in the head with the hurl and um, just blood pouring down his face. So that turned me off hurling completely. But I love watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Galway have done well at the hurling recently enough, haven't they? Oh, they have, yeah. They they won, finally won the All-Ireland in 2017 after losing a lot of finals in the, the 2000s and 2010s. Lost the, uh, the All-Ireland the following year. But yeah, it was, it was great. It was most of, most of County Galway was just relieved more than sort of ecstatic uh, that they had finally won. Yeah, it's, it's good. And the footballers are starting to do well again. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the, uh, the Christmas All-Irelands are like this year. I know, yeah. I'm from Westmead, so unfortunately, you know, we don't really have any big sporting occasions. Uh, well, we, you, you, you've great county colours. We do. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's the only thing. I mean, we, we still all cling on to like, you know, 2004, we won the Leinster. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. well, which is brilliant, yeah. 16 years ago. Great. And we're still like, you know, th- those were the days. <laughs> well, I, I can remember that. Yeah. Great day. Great day for... Uh, I remember we, I was so young at the time and I remember we went up to the match and uh, we were playing Leash and I... You know when you're that age, you don't really—I didn't really understand—and and I was really sure that we hated Leash. Like we, okay. like from then on, like we could never go to Leash. They were immortal enemies. You know, it's funny because I must have been maybe ten or that. You know, um, but uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so I mean, it's been great, great to chat to you. Thanks again for for oh, coming likewise. on. Not at all. My pleasure, and you know, congratulations with the podcast. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you liked this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.